Our sermon text for this morning comes out of the end of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. It reads like this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of reading. Father, I pray now that you would proclaim your news by the power of your Holy Spirit through my very imperfect and feeble lips. May we not just see the point of this story, but find ourselves swept up into it. I ask it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Despair. It's only been about 40 hours or so since Jesus breathed his last breath. Most of his disciples weren't around to witness it, of course, because they had fled in fear. But for the few that were still there, there was no mistaking that he was gone. People like Jesus' mother Mary and and the Apostle John and others had, had clearly seen him beaten to a pulp. They saw him mocked and crowned with thorns. They saw him, no doubt, shaking profusely after being whipped 39 times with the cat of nine tails, shards of glass and rock, scraping into his back with each whipping. So much so to the point that they saw what was once his back now turned into simply one gigantic bloody wound. They saw nails pounded into his wrists and his feet, They saw him lifted high on a cross by those very same nails. They saw him struggling to breathe, crying out things like, I thirst. They heard him ask, indeed plead with his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They heard him yell, it is finished. And they heard him gasp, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
From there, they saw his lifeless body taken down from the cross, transported to a tomb, laid inside of it, and a large stone rolled across the front entrance. There was absolutely no doubt. The one they had hoped was their long-awaited Savior, their Messiah, was dead. The religious establishment, the corrupt religious establishment, had won. Rome had won. Jesus was a loser. The movement was over. It was understandable that most of the disciples went into hiding. After all, that... That's what happened every time. There happened to be a lot of messianic-type figures around the time of Jesus. And once they stomped out the messianic figure, the person claiming to be more special than everyone else, well, the movement soon died off. I mean, after all, it made all the sense in the world. If, if the powers of Rome and the religious establishment could come together and stamp out their miracle-working leader, a man that they had seen walk on water and provide bread for thousands of people just out of the palm of his hands, it was totally understandable that the natural thing to do would be to hide. And yet you have these few women in Mark. Mary, and another Mary, and Salome. They've decided to get some spices to anoint the corpse of Jesus. Now, don't don't mistake that for being a sign of hope. They didn't have any hope when they did that. This was standard practice. It was sort of an act of despairing piety. Not, Not all that dissimilar to when we put a flower or two on the top of a coffin before it is lowered down into the ground. The point of bringing the spices, in fact, was just to keep his decomposing body from stinking too much. Yes, this was an act of despairing piety. I don't, I don't know everybody here this morning or everybody watching online, but perhaps there are some who are coming to the tomb today with the same sort of feeling, despairing piety. You haven't gotten to a place where you can say that this story is true yet, this whole thing that Christianity is based off of. But you come because it's the right thing to do. You watch because you were told you should. Maybe you felt it was just the right thing to do. And yet, underneath it all, there is a despair because you're not convinced. And suddenly a thought occurs to Mary and Mary and Salome And the thought's a good one. As they head to the tomb, they wonder, you know what? We forgot something. Uh, Who's going to roll the stone away? This is a good question, by the way. I mean, the stone was 2,000 to 4,000 pounds, and it was rolled down a hill, embedded into a crease. I mean, it would take a dozen people 
to move that stone. Mary, yes, Mary, what are we going to do? Well, they plunge ahead anyway, and they, they get to the stone. They get to the tomb, and, and what do you know? The stone is rolled away. Now, you might think that that would be cause for celebration, but, but remember what it would have been like for them just having seen all that they've seen. They would have had no reason to believe, seeing that stone rolled away, that it was Jesus' friends that did such a thing. Jesus' friends and disciples were all in hiding. The only ones that could have done such a thing were his opponents, at least rationally. And so you can imagine Mary and Mary and Salome walking up to the tomb and not being filled with hope, but as the text says, being alarmed. It could have been, after all, that the Romans and the religious establishment hearing about this despised criminal that they had decided was Jesus, was not worthy to be laid in the tomb. After all, I mean, if somebody was crucified, that was the sort of dregs of society. It was the worst of the worst kind of criminals. The whole purpose of crucifixion was to absolutely and utterly dehumanize a person to the fullest extent possible in their last remaining moments of life. It would make sense if they assumed that maybe the Roman guards hearing about this Jesus being laid in such an elaborate burial would say, "Uh uh-uh. And they'd move the stone and they'd throw him into a ditch like all the other criminals. But they plunge forward toward the tomb anyway peeking their head around the entrance to the tomb. They don't see Jesus' body. Instead, what they see is a man. How weird is that? Not a whole lot of people like to spend their leisure time hanging out in tombs. And yet, that's what they see. A man dressed in white, sitting there, just sitting there, Understandably, they're alarmed. And yet the man responds immediately, noticing they're alarmed. Don't be. Don't be. It's okay. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Of all the things the women expected to hear come out of the mouth of this stranger, dressed as nicely as he was, I don't think they were expecting those words. It is true that Jesus had warned his disciples, and indeed they had to be aware of it. He had told his disciples that this was going to happen. I mean, it wasn't as if he didn't give them fair warning. And yet what we're shown in the story over and over and over again is his disciples just don't get it. So look at Mark 8, Mark 8, 31. Jesus says to his disciples, I mean, you can't get more plain than this. The Son of Man's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And what is the response of the disciples? Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. No, no, no. That's not happening to you. So Jesus tries again in Mark 9, 31. 
Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But what was his disciples' response then? Quote, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. But he's not done. Mark 10, they're going to mock the Son of Man, spin on him, flog him, kill him. Man, it doesn't get more specific than that. And after three days, he's going to rise. And instead of them comprehending what he's saying, we're told they immediately start disputing about who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. They just don't get it. They don't see it coming. And so here we are again with a declaration that Jesus has died and has risen from the dead. They can even see where he had been laid. They can see his burial cloths there and that he is not in them. One thing is abundantly clear now. Jesus is not there. The tomb is empty. The angelic seeming man continues, verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And now the plot thickens. These women who have witnessed so much pain and so much horror and so much shame on the part of Jesus are being called upon at this very moment to believe this word that Jesus is alive. They're even promised that when they go back to the disciples in Galilee that they'll see him with their own eyes. What will their response be to such a claim? Will they believe without seeing? Will you? For quite some time, scholars have debated exactly where the Gospel of Mark ends. If you have a Bible with you, basically in all modern translations, most of you will have a note after verse 8, and it will point out that in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible that we have, of Mark's Gospel, that verses 9 through 20 aren't there. And so, it's actually kind of consensus now amongst most biblical scholars, and I'm talking people that believe the faith, that actually do confess Jesus as Lord, they have come to the place that they believe that nine verses, uh, verses 9 through 20 were not in the original text. Well, this is, this is a bit strange because that means that it ends at verse 8. And, and how does verse 8 end? Well, I, I, it, is, it is interesting. The last verse, if, if we take that position, I'm not particularly passionate about it one way or the other, and I'm not going to make a defense for either one to you today, but let's just assume for the sake of argument that the text actually done, does. The story ends at verse 8. This is the way it closes. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. Now, you've got to remember, when these Gospels were circulated in the early days, 
You didn't have the other Gospels to supplement your understanding. You might have just gotten Mark in the very beginning. Imagine being in a church and reading Mark's account and it ending with the words, for they were afraid. They said nothing, for they were afraid. And there's no reported appearance of Jesus to them. Only, only the word from the angelic man in the tomb saying, he's risen. And if you go to Galilee, you'll see him. What's Mark's big idea, ending the book like that? I don't think it's an accident, folks. I think it's purposeful. I think it fits right in line with what you see in Mark's gospel all the time. Part of Mark's gospel, part of the big theme is this question to everybody who reads it. Will you believe even if you have not seen yet? Will you trust the word that is given to you? Trembling astonishment and fear is what we're told the women experienced at the reporting of Jesus' resurrection. I suppose there's two ways we could understand that. We could, on the one hand, understand that to be depicting their inability to believe what they had been told, that they didn't believe what what they couldn't see. I mean, they were fleeing from the tomb, that's what the word says, and and they were, well, we're told silent. They didn't say anything to anyone. It could be that some of you hearing this message today have or have had a similar response to the claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Maybe you're the kind of person that you can acknowledge that the tomb was empty. But maybe the most natural response for you is to flee too. And to just try and live life without the implications of an empty tomb. And I want to say to you who may be in that place today, I'm glad you're listening. And I'm really glad that you're here, whether physically or online. I want to tell you that it's okay to wrestle with the claims that Christianity makes. After all, Lord knows Jesus had to wrestle with his disciples for quite a long time before they seemed to get it at all. It's okay. For those in that place, I can't help but think about the author and psychologist Jordan Peterson. Dr. Peterson has spoken a lot over the years about biblical themes in his lectures, and so, of course, it was natural for many of his students and fans to wonder if he actually believed in Jesus or not. And so, as he gave these sold-out lectures to thousands and thousands of people, inevitably the question would come up over and over again, Dr. Peterson, are you a Christian? And he would sort of hem and haw around, and he really wouldn't deal with it. And he'd usually say something like this. Well, whether I believe the literal story is true doesn't matter as much because I believe in at least the ideas presented in the story. I believe the ideas give us a good sense of, let's say, Western civilization or the deeper psyche of mankind. But he'd never pin himself down to saying he believed the story. Well, let's get back to our women in the story. There is another way of seeing the women's response to the claim of the risen Christ. 
Yes, they fled, and yes, they were silent, at least initially, but that's not all that's said. We're, we're told that they trembled, were astonished, and were afraid. Now, it could be that the reason they reacted the way they did is not because they didn't believe, but in fact, it turns out that's the way anyone reacts at the possibility that the divine has done something miraculous in your midst. As a matter of fact, you find that theme all throughout Mark's gospel too. When Jesus calms a storm, they don't say, well, thank you, that's neat. No, they respond, we're told, with fear and trembling. When Jesus walks on water, they are said to be, quote, astonished or astounded. When Jesus is transfigured into his heavenly personage before their eyes, they are terrified. It would be my bet that rather than having an unbelieving response at this moment, that the women are having more of a response like that to the empty tomb. That they are quite literally awestruck, but with the slightest bit of hope and anticipation that what has been told to them just might be true. After all, the other Gospels do eventually fill in the details for us that they did go to the disciples and start talking. It makes all the sense in the world to me that just initially they didn't exactly know how to deal with the news. Going back to Jordan Peterson now. Recently he was in an interview with an Eastern Orthodox artist and they got on the subject of Jesus for quite some time. And there was something different about the way Peterson talked about Jesus. He started to get choked up. and It was quite shocking to people that have followed his work at all to hear him say about Jesus... It becomes something with a power that transcends your ability to resist it. I probably believe that, and I am amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. In some sense, I believe it's undeniable. In Jesus, the narrative and the objective world touch and the ultimate example of that seems to be Christ. And I can't believe it. It seems to be oddly plausible to me. I still don't know what to make of it. And listen to what he says. Partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it, end quote. That description Peterson gives, I believe, is very close to what the women at the tomb are initially going through. I don't even know what would happen to me if I allowed myself to believe this. After all the things that I've seen, after all the horror that we've witnessed, 
Can I believe this? What would happen if you believed that Jesus had taken your sins upon Himself at His crucifixion? What would happen if you really believed that all of your sin, all of your failures were forgiven in the sight of God right now? What would happen if He really did come back from the dead, giving us and all of humanity assurance that death really wasn't the final word? What if we lived believing that because of what he's done, we will live forever. The thought of it all is too awe-inspiring for words. I get, I get why Mark would end his gospel like this. I understand it. The idea is phenomenal. And yet I'm here to tell you today in closing, like those women eventually did to Peter and the rest of the disciples, it is true. Jesus has been crucified for your sins. Jesus has declared you are forgiven. Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive now, interceding at the right hand of the Father on your behalf. Jesus has defeated your death, and with him you will live forever. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, I'm so thankful that you, you are patient with us. I'm so thankful that, that like Jacob in the Bible, that you will come down and wrestle with us. I am so thankful that you pursue us. And most of all, I'm thankful that your son is alive today and has defeated death for us. I pray now, Father, for any who are here or watching this, that by the power of your Spirit, you would make that fact abundantly clear to them. That you would, they would see in your Son's resurrection, their own resurrection, that they would find hope, not just for the day, but for all of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.